Welcome to episode 67 of Really True Fiction uh, on the Isaac Asimov Novel Foundation. I'm just jumping in real quick before the episode to give an additional spoilers heads up because in this episode we give, well I give mostly, (laughs) major spoilers for both the film Star Trek Beyond and season four of Breaking Bad. And I know that we give uh, spoilers in the episode notes, but uh, upon re-listening after I edited this particular episode, I realized that these aren't just spoilers, these are major spoilers. And since I really love that movie and that show, I wanted to jump in here just quick before the episode started to let you know that there are major spoilers for, once again, Star Trek Beyond and Breaking Bad season four. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, do you think that there's any chance the head of the Karelian Republic is actually Han Solo? <laughs> I I had never thought about that. You didn't. Uh, I know. Wait, did you, where did this idea come from? Did you know that the planet Han Solo is from in the Star Wars universe is called Karelia? I did not. Yes. I did not. And on top of that, uh, Trantor, the very first capital planet, is a planet totally covered in uh, buildings, a right? It's True. a city. True. I uh, wonder what that reminds me of. Uh, uh, what, what, what could it be? <laughs> Coruscant, right? So ah. I am under the impression that George Lucas read the book Foundation, which we are about to do today. Would, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Foundation <laughs> is like considered, I mean, everyone's heard of Asimov's most famous work, iRobot, but I think Foundation is probably his best work within the sci-fi fandom. Yes, but the thing is, there's these two references that aren't even references. They're almost like plagiarisms. <laughs> <laughs> well, know? I've heard from a number of sources that most of Star Wars was... <laughs> was plagiarized sure yes I, I i don't i don't hold to that theory i think it was just archetypes are right. the same across the ages but mm. uh there, there is an argument that's made out there for that it's possible too that plagiarism is a bit too harsh of a word because star wars is not trying to present itself as this great magnum opus of cinema right no there, there's definitely yeah. something a little tongue-in-cheek about the original star wars tr- trilogy when you watch it right Yes, no, it's true. But it's true. it was interesting to me reading through this, because this is the first time I ever read Foundation by Asimov. The way that Trantor, the capital planet, is described, I was like, this is Coruscant. This is exactly the same as Coruscant, right? I feel like the people of Coruscant spend more te- time outside than the people of Trantor. Sure. Yeah, Almost that certainly. Would be- but That'd be my exception, but yes. The description of it is like a, a planet that's a city. Like, that's yeah. exactly Coruscant, right? 
And yeah, then um, more closer to the end of the book, there's the um, Karelian Republic. Yes. And yes. Han Solo is from a planet called Karelia. <laughs> and all like, true. All, all true. those ships, so many of the spaceships are made in Karelia. And if you've seen the Han Solo movie, that's where that's the beginning of the movie is on the planet Karelia when he escapes from it. Yes. So, yeah. I, uh, I definitely nerded out seeing those two very blatant Star Wars Star Wars very blatantly taking those two things. I mean, the, they're so on the nose that for it to be a coincidence just seems more absurd than someone like George Lucas read Asimov, which almost seems yes. impossible like he wouldn't, right? Right, yeah, why wouldn't... I mean, he, the guy loved sci-fi, so why wouldn't he? Yeah, I mean, George Lucas was a big fan of all of those, like, Flash Gordon uh, sci-fi stuff from, like, the 60s and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, that's neither here nor there. I, I just made those notes because I... I obviously love Star Wars, and I, I I was so appreciative as a deep fan of Star Wars to see, oh, I wonder, okay, two major parts of the Star Wars story maybe came from this book. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I, can't, I don't know whether, I can't think of a, another story where it's a plant, city that's entirely, or a planet that's entirely developed, like, for as a city is. So it might very well come from there. Mm -hmm. So just before we get started, I wanted to let everyone know that we're learning the rem remote recording process. So again, I'm in Alberta and you are in Ontario. And so yes. we're recording this over Skype and we are improving, I hope. But nevertheless, through a sequence of events that's nobody's fault and we won't point the fingers at anyone who did anything... <laughs> Uh, we are without an, a USB microphone for you again. So you're actually recording through your laptop microphone, which yeah. doesn't sound too bad, actually. But again, this will not be hopefully the common audio quality of our episodes. But we just really wanted to record today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have We've no been... ability to not be patient. <laughs> just wait. <laughs> we we have uh, this particular book fresh in both of our minds. And I've been excited about doing this one for a while. I think I recommended it quite early on in the existence of really true fiction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's in keeping with the theme of the book or one of the themes of the book that you and I are so impatient to record that it's basically predictable by anyone a hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> true. Good one. I like that. I like yeah, that. that was good. Yeah. So yeah, this book, Foundation, Isaac Asimov, 1951, this book was first published. And it's the first in a series of books, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, the Foundation series, yeah. Hmm. And there's, so there's Foundation, book. Foundation and Empire, the second Foundation, and there's a couple of yeah, Foundation. They get worse, to be honest, as you go along. I, I honestly do believe that the first is undoubtedly the best. Right. And I love the ideas explored in the first one. I really enjoyed the second and the third. The fourth and the fifth just kind of go off into, into some kind of weird, I don't know. They're not as good. <laughs> Right. But the first one is really good, and I think any fan of sci-fi should should definitely read the first one. Oh, yeah. Well, I had never read it before. Uh, I obviously knew of Asimov through iRobot, which is an okay movie on a cool idea, I would say. You know? Like, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, was, um, it, was a, it was an entertaining thought experiment. But yeah. this book, Foundation, I feel like this is the movie I want to see. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like yeah. this, I was honestly, David, and I, I know I can exaggerate sometimes, I'm prone to hyperbole for fun's sake, but I mean this very sincerely. I was floored at how good this book was. 
You know, yeah, I was I'm, I was well, floored. Yeah, this this is like a kind of a perfect book for really true fiction too. I feel like because it is, yes, it's an it's a narrative exploration of really cool ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we we mentioned this in Blade Runner. Like this might even be more explicitly philosophical and psychological. Yes, <laughs> right. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but interestingly enough, and I love this about it, it doesn't feel like you're reading something philosophic or mm. or psychological. I mean, I, I guess they do call it psychohistory, and there's a lot of that kind of stuff. But he doesn't use terms no. that would throw a person off. No. In any way, right? All of the language is very simple. The explanations are incredibly brief. Um, I think later in the book. It becomes a little bit more complex, but mm. especially at the beginning, it's just very simple, clear uh, storytelling with, I think, some of the deepest philosophic concepts that there are. Oh, for sure. I was, um, you know, as you know, I'm a big nerd. So when we did Blade Runner, I loved being able to just kind of go off on Plato and essentialism and philosophy. and But this book had even more of it, I felt. And yet... You're right. It's not in language that's like technical or hard to understand. And it's not even that big of a book, right? It's only about 240 pages. So a relatively short novel with these just kind of sweeping ideas, right? It's very, very much an idea book. It's hardly even a character book. Like there are characters in it, but the characters themselves seem to be stand-ins for the ideas of that moment in the process that Asimov is talking about, right? Yeah, exactly. Like the characters are much more the roles that they play than they are themselves as people. Yeah, and it, there's not a lot of uh, work done on character development. Everything is narrative driven. Mm-hmm. You know what? Honestly, five pages into this book, I was like, oh, I understand why David recommended this for really true fiction. <laughs> like this is, yeah. I, I honestly couldn't believe I'd never read it before. <laughs> <laughs> I know to it's, be it's one of those hidden gems that I hope uh, people will pick up and look at because it's definitely mm-hmm. uh, definitely worth it. Yes. So just before we do a plot rundown, I just want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners out there. Another big shout out to India. Thank you so much. <laughs> We're definitely growing on the subcontinent. <laughs> and just like um, how grateful i feel to think that there's people out there who take time out of your days and your lives and especially in these covid times where things are just hard on balance if you listen to our latest bonus episode on the south park pandemic special you'll kind of hear a little bit in me and david's voices about our own feelings about the pandemic and how it it wears people down and and just i i think like this might be too presumptuous but to the extent that really true fiction ever cheers any of you up ever is so gratifying to me and i'm sure it is to you too david yes absolutely and uh i think i would just encourage everyone who listens to again send us an email tell us your thoughts engage in conversation because uh, i know this is the case for me and and luke one of the the great uh, antidotes to any of this is being able to talk to other people about things we love. Exactly, exactly. Presumably, if you are listening to this, you're a fan of books and movies as well. Because <laughs> exactly. I can't, I can't yeah. imagine it'd be a fan of us. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Hitchens always made a joke, people don't come to listen to me because of my pretty blue eyes. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> 
Well, I know I know your dad listens to us, so at least we have one fan. Yes, that's true. just for us. Yeah, our listener. Uh, so yes, if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group that you can search Really True Fiction and join. I don't know if I've really stated this explicitly, but one of the main reasons we started this podcast is that we wanted to interact with people over interesting things. So... We want to be totally transparent and open with everything we talk about. So if you have like anything, oh, that didn't make sense. I would like further clarification. I don't know about that. Feel free to reach out to us. And we uh, will, we'll, uh, uh, the guarantee is at, at least at this stage, uh, answering every single email. <laughs> yes. So, yes, we yes. And um, if you do listen to us on a uh, podcast app that allows for rating or reviews, such as uh, Apple Podcasts, if you feel so inclined to give us a five-star rating and actually uh, write a little review, that's a really good way to help the show grow because that's apparently reviews are specifically how algorithms find new podcasts and allow them to move up the charts. So if that's something you feel inclined to do, we'd really appreciate it. I agree. I'm just I, I'm just very grateful to everyone who's listening. And I think both of us would uh, benefit from engaging with the, the kind of people who love these things as much as we do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the book, it's sectioned off into five different sections called The Psychohistorians, The Encyclopedists, The Mayors, The Traders, and The Merchant Princes. Since you're a little bit more familiar with this, I, I, how many times have you read it? Uh, twice now. Okay. Twice so do you want to give us a very broad idea of what this book is about, <laughs> David? So I think, okay, this is maybe my speculation. Really what I see Asimov doing is trying to explain how history uh, unfolds and how it actually is predictable on the grand scale of civilizations and of groups of people and, and mobs, and, but how the, un, the individual is unpredictable. So often these things can seem unpredictable to the individual, but when you break it down to its contingent parts, it becomes very scientific. Mm. And so the the theme of this is there's been this galactic empire for thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of years, uh, and someone comes along and predicts the downfall of the empire, and people scoff at this person, and he goes on trial almost in a Socrates-like way, uh, and and he's just saying, I'm just looking at the facts for how they are, I'm not a traitor, and it, it gets set up so that he has said that what he thinks must happen for civilization to preserve itself is for all of the knowledge of mankind to be collected in one place, i.e. an encyclopedia, and that store of knowledge will be a way in which uh, civilization can be reborn. At least that's the argument he makes, or that, uh, sorry, um, I should say that's the argument that the psychohistorians make. Now, throughout the book, we discover that that was more of a facade in order to create a, to settle a planet with basically no resources, but with settle it with a bunch of scientists, have the scientific method be the found, the foundation, quote unquote, of this civilization, and then push it, put it through a series of tests that would be inevitable based on where it was, or I guess you call it uh, galactically or geographically uh, in a smaller sense. And, uh, but also the, the fact that it lacked all resources. 
And it's just a really cool series of events that are, you get this feeling of predestination, but it's not really predestination. It's just very well planned out. And it goes from essentially the birth of this planet. It's first, the first uh, section is how it began. The second section is 50 years later. The next section is 30 years after that. And then we get larger timescales as um, essentially this group of people try to re-kickstart civilization as it crumbles, as the empire, uh, or as the empire that once was, is crumbling in the internal part of the galaxy. So mm. the foundation was established on like the far outskirts of civilization, of the galaxy itself. Right. There's not a lot of stars around. Uh, there's just not, not a lot of anything, whereas most of the galactic empire was all centralized in the, where, the, where there are a lot of stars, where there's you know a lot of worlds, where there's a lot of resources. Where it would make sense to have a capital. Exactly, exactly. So basically, we, we got this tiny planet in the hinterland of the galaxy, settled by scientists, and what Foundation is is the story of how that group of people are met with these historical events, how they keep passing these tests or or Sheldon crises as they call them. Yeah, because the, the the guy you're referring to is his name is Harry Selden, I think. Yes, yeah, so, right. Yeah, so Harry Selden is the psycho historian. He doesn't actually play a big role in the book as a character. Uh, he only appears in the first section, but. He is the man who worked out the, the quote-unquote science of predicting the future and, and po positioned the foundation civilization to best, basically to funnel all their, of their choice matrices into a single choice that they had to take to speed up the rebuilding of civilization, which, if left to its natural devices they say could take 30,000 years, mm -hmm. which Selden believes is a catastrophe because it would be a, a lot of human suffering and death would would result from that. Yeah. So like a good, I think a nice way to think about it is that this Harry Selden character, this psycho historian, which is such a fascinating term. I never even thought of that before, but it, it fits so well, basically has a vision of the future of civilized people, right? And he basically says that the downfall of the empire is statistically inevitable based on all of the variables that he's using in his psychohistorical analysis. And yeah, like you mentioned, his goal is to make the rebuild shorter than normal. But it's interesting. It turns out he actually has several sub goals to a actual more final goal, which is like the foundation being the hub of civilization again kind of thing. It's interesting because every section of the book is like a time jump of like 50 years or 80 years or 100 years, right? And so yes. we have these vast, it's very important to the book actually, we have these vast swaths of time in between where we pick up the story in any given section. Yeah, and it is also, it kind of makes each character seem like you know, it's it's a really interesting way of looking at life, the life of the individual. There's even this one phrase uh, where the mayor uh, is saying to his uh, his key advisor, he's like, you know, by the time there's a the next major of historical event, you and I will be dead and buried. Yeah. And I and I often wonder, like, 
is that how people who fought in the first and second world wars might have felt right like right, oh right, right. by the time there's another one we'll be gone but we we've had our you know our crises that we had to to work through uh so it's a really cool way of of because so often I think we can get myopically mm. attached to our own, uh, let's call it era, and forget the the vast uh, vastness of history, not just uh, backwards, but also hopefully forwards. Well, you know what? There was a part of me reading this book where it, it kind of reads a little bit like a polemic against a late civilizational culture. <laughs> yes. Do, do you know what I mean? Like. Oh. There's yes. a, if you think, I mean, this was written in 1951, so it would have been six years after World War II ended, and I, it seems like Asimov, it just, it's too blatant to not be a kind of criticism on, I don't know, what would you even call it, like the, uh, the um, obsession with self, at the very least, where all of the heroes of the book are the people who are able to, to have a bigger vision than their own status, or their own place, or their own kind of like station right which i think is interesting like that's that's a really interesting critique because i think it's just as i mean maybe it's partly human nature to not see beyond your own life i mean obviously it is we've talked about that lots but the fact that asimov could write a book like this which is so comprehensible and yet take over these huge swaths of time and history means like we can do it right like we can think bigger picture than at least asimov could (laughs) To, yes, present, yes. to present a picture like that, which is very inspiring to me to think, oh my gosh, like I had never, because I don't even know the right word for it, David, but this book made me think a new thought. <laughs> like, yes. It feels yes. stupid to say it like that, but it's like, it made me feel a new thought even. Might, that might be a better way to put it. Like I felt the idea of psychohistory, like yes. the prediction of way into the future based on an understanding of human nature and an attempt to try and make the lives of people hundreds of years from now better, right? And I mean, it makes me wonder about what he would say about things like climate change even, you know? I suspect he would say similar things to what Elon Musk is saying. I really Mm -hmm. see Elon and Asimov as kindred spirits in this. Like, why is Elon Musk working so hard? I mean, there's a lot of cynicism around Elon Musk. And, the, and you could say, oh, he just actually just wants to make money. Except if that was possible, why would he be selling all of his homes and again and again betting everything that he has on this idea of getting humanity off the planet? Because he understands just the basic fundamental first principle facts mm-hmm. that if we're only on one planet and there's an extinction event on that planet, humanity might not exist forever. Right. Yeah, exactly. Actually, well, it's I'm glad I knew Elon Musk was going to come up and probably yeah. several times in this episode because even <laughs> yes. the the character in the last section, the the Mallow character, yeah. he made me yeah. think of Elon Musk. Like that was the that was the person in real life I thought that character most resembled at least, you know, to the extent that I can have any apprehension of what Elon Musk is like. Yes. <laughs> I yes, I yes. intuit he must be kind of like that guy to be able to kind of handle the slings and arrows and rise above to the the level he gets to right so yeah and and watching it all happen but having a plan for every step along the way right mm-hmm. i think what i love about this book is it exalts the idea of planning and like 
working through problems and having solutions for the problems and like then a well-executed plan right in a way i just feel like a lot of even when you watch the social network a great movie probably one of fincher's best Mm. but when you watch it it doesn't feel like facebook was a plan no it feels like facebook evolved beyond what let's say zuckerberg thought it could become well yeah and i just i don't just don't like that vision of reality, right? Because in my mind, the way that you succeed is that all that hard work and planning that nobody really ever sees, right? Right. And in this case, it's it's expert planning that we're seeing. It's it's like down to the to to, to tiny little details, oh. all thought about. You know what? I really I like that you put it like that because it made me figure out how I would want to phrase it. Like, what is cool about psychohistory? I guess is that. The, the things like the social network that weren't planned that you mentioned, like if you were putting those in evolutionary terms, biologists would call those emergent properties, right? They yes. kind of come yeah. organically out of the system based on the interactions that are not random, but like kind of so difficult to predict that they're functionally unpredictable, right? And yep. what is cool about psychohistory and Harry Seldon and Asimov is that putting it on a long enough timeline it feels like Selden's character is giving the best go possible at predicting emergent properties out of his understanding about the kind of creature human beings are. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like the idea of predicting the emergent properties psychologically. So yeah, maybe this dovetails well, but there's a, the, the, the part to jump in, so the, in the section, the, the psychohistorians, so the people who analyze history through a psychological lens would be probably the best way to put it. On page 19, there is a um, description of it. So this is about psychohistory, and the line is, there's a further, ne- uh, a further necessary assumption is that the human conglomerate be itself unaware of psychohistoric analysis in order that its reactions be truly random. So the populace, the general swath of people can't know that they're being analyzed, right? And there's obviously parallels to this in psychological experiments now, right? Yeah. In a way, you kind of have to like, I mean, and I'm not an expert on this, uh, so any psychologists out there can probably clarify, but like, it seems to me if you're going to construct the proper psychological experiment, you'd have to tell your subjects you're doing something, but this experiment is actually on something else that you don't tell them about that's going to be like a natural reaction to the way that they think they're doing the first thing that you've told them to do, right? Yeah, and I, we see that, that kind of, like, and the, the placebo effect, right? You're, you're never going to actually find out whether a drug works if people know they're on a placebo or don't. They have to not know, mm. right? Because cause then they could believe in it and it could just be impacting their health positively because they they're happier or they are more confident right right whereas you need to know that the action but i think it's more than that in, in this particular case with psychohistory what you're seeing is people being fundamentally opposed to the idea of being controlled and so it's not that they're being controlled you can't let you can't have people know they're being uh, quote unquote controlled uh, because then they might rebel against that, mm. right? And you even see that in a few of the scenes in the book, uh, uh, especially in the third chapter, which is called The Mayors, uh, where we're, we encounter this young man who, who wants to, like, he's very passionate and patriotic, 
about Terminus, which is the the planet mm. that the Foundation is established on, and he believes that by leaving them weak and unable to fight, right. uh, the or they need to they need to go to war, right? Mm. And he's rebelling against this idea that there's some kind of plan. But what what he's really rebelling against is human nature. He just doesn't realize that. Right. But it is human nature to rebel against claims that human nature is a certain way. Mm. Do you know, like, <laughs> this just occurred to me. The perspective of psychohistory is very similar to the perspective of the machines in the Matrix, where the human batteries they use to harvest energy once they become aware, they're going to exit the matrix, right? <laughs> so yeah, the yeah. psychohistorical analysis won't work if, as it were, and I hate to use this term, but it seems appropriate, if all of the people in Foundation become red-pilled to the, <laughs> the version right. of psychohistory being analyzed, they're being analyzed of, it won't work. And it additionally actually also made me think, and I mean, this is a, we mentioned Plato, it, it reminded me of Plato's noble lie, right? Or the noble lie from Plato. Right where yeah. it's um, Plato had this argument, I guess probably in the Republic, I can't remember exactly where, where he talked about the necessity to basically have a noble lie for most of your population so that you can convince them to move towards a better life or, or in, in um, Asimov's terms, maybe a more civilized world. They have to believe something that isn't true. And this right, is kind of right. like an axiom that Plato used in his political philosophy. So I don't know. Did you see, does that, any of that make sense to you as a way of framing it? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think there's a, a, I mean, here's an example. The noble lie, I think, is necessary for all life, right? Be us, all human life. Because when you really boil down the human condition of our own mortality and our brief consciousness, like... It all it can get it can fill you with a little bit of despair, mm. right? So we have to have things to live for. And I, what I like about, let's say, the noble lie that's being presented to the people of Foundation, with eventually understanding the need for Sheldon crises and and you know that they are destined to you know be the beginning of the next galactic empire, is they have something to work towards. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Themselves. Yeah. Right. It's a noble lie because, I mean, eventually Asimov wrote another amazing short story. It's called The Last Question. And it's, oh, it's it, everyone that listens to this has to read it. It's only, I don't know, 17, 18 pages. But it's essentially uh, a reflection on entropy and technological advances. This one spans billions of years oh wow it's only 17 pages incredible work i'm not going to give it away but I, I highly recommend reading it but i mean that gives another question to humanity what happens at the heat death of the universe sure right so so yes the foundation is building the second empire but there is going to eventually be the heat death of the universe right so <laughs> what is all this building towards right yeah yeah, I don't. I don't think that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's well thought out. But I'll say this: I think it's better to live with a noble lie than the unadulterated truth, because that's an untenable position for a human mind to inhabit. Right. I mean, I think that that's essentially. I would. I would probably submit that that that's the question Camus is posing in a lot of his philosophy. Right. How does yeah. how does one live? 
meaningfully once one recognizes that it's in a meaningless universe. Um, yeah. Like the absurd, yeah. right? Like the, the uh, what you're calling the unadulterated truth to me sounds a lot like Camus' The Absurd, right? <laughs> like the uh, oh, yeah. the despair yeah. and the um, the void, right? Now, because I think, or I'm an optimist <laughs> deep down, right. I want to maybe chew on the fat of this potential idea and see if this makes any sense to you. So do you think there is an example of something like the noble truth as opposed to like the unadulterated truth, right? Mm. So interestingly in the book, there are a number of characters who, because they know psychology, actually see through this noble lie, right? Or psychohistory. They see through Selden's plan. So, you know, the Hardin or... Um, and Mallow, those two guys especially, who are kind of our heroes later in the book in their own sections, they are the ones... Well, they, 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 they don't see through it. They see that it exists, right. and then they, they both choose to follow it. So in, in essence, in understanding what, what uh, Selden's trying to do, mm -hmm. they agree with his what he's trying to do and, and follow him. Right? Okay, well, I'll put it to you this way then. When the first Selden crisis... 50 years later is revealed and it's Selden reveals that the encyclopedia plan was actually just a facade and a fake out to get people to this planet basically and be away. Hardin is the least surprised by that. <laughs> Still very surprised, but very happy it seems. Right? Yeah. Cause he's like, Oh, at least Selden thinks like I do mm. and, and has and and projects the future understands what matters but I, one of the things i love about this is hardin loves terminus right just he he is patriotic towards terminus mm -hmm. and he wants to preserve terminus and all of his actions are to that end and he takes over the government because he realizes that these incompetent scientists are incapable of governance because they don't understand human psychology and they they exist in a in a world that's largely arguments from authority Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he, in fact, deeply criticizes them for that. And especially the emperor's envoy. Who <laughs> yes. Shows yes. It's an enjoyable uh, scene for that's sure. A great, There's actually yeah. so many great scenes with Hardin in the book. He was probably my favorite because he's just, he, he seems so sarcastic about it too, which is kind of funny. He was, yeah. He was pretty incredible. Okay. No, so I, we've talked about this before. I'm thinking along the lines of, what I'm calling the noble truth maybe being like choosing our own fictions to live by as opposed to the fictions we choose, we live by being foisted on us through authority or culture. Yeah. I think, I think that's a really big one. Being, uh, being the masters of deciding which way to live, but not being so dogmatic to think that the way we've chosen is fundamentally different than the way other people live in the way that they that they have the way they, they navigate the world right and that's a psychologically difficult position to take to truly admit that your way of living may be no better than anyone else's right that's a very humbling <laughs> place because most people want to think feel that they've thought it through more than others and you know, that their way actually is better than other people's well it's better in the one sense in the david foster wallace sense is that it's conscious Yes. Right, because I do very. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. This might be a difference of opinion with you. I really and me, but I really believe the sentiment when Thomas Paine writes, "A mind once stretched by an idea can never return to its original shape." So 
it's kind of like the curse of learning something. You can never go back to the psychological position of what it was like to not know that thing, right? Yeah. Like you just yeah. can't. It's it's so involuntary and the knowledge is there. So in a sense, Selden is saying that if everyone were like him, <laughs> psychohistory wouldn't work, <laughs> right? Yes. Like if everyone was like Selden, but then I'm also wondering, well, actually, if you have a... um a society of people where everyone is kind of like wise to the game that they're playing, can you still live by choosing it consciously? And I think that this is actually something Ayn Rand was trying to talk about in Atlas Shrugged. This was like basically Atlantis, right? I would say Atlantis was the land that she was painting that everyone was living consciously with the kind of noble truth of being able to choose their own philosophy right and now obviously considering it's called objectivism that's a little bit uh, that feels like an oxymoron <laughs> everyone's sub- yeah everyone's yeah. subjectively choosing objectivism <laughs> but i still feel something there's like something here to chew on around i don't know like i i, I guess i'm just so sad by the idea that there's an impossibility or, or an inevitability of the noble lie for most of humankind and I don't see it as a category difference, I guess, but it's like it's a pursuit to kind of find more of the noble truth in the way I'm framing it around consciously choosing your better fictions, maybe as Eric Weinstein would put it. So I don't know. Does any of that resonate with you? I mean, I tend to believe that people are a lot happier being unaware, (laughs) Mm. that it is a lot easier to go through life truly believing a noble lie than it is to face truth, right? So I don't know. I mean, personally, I think I would rather be aware than unaware. But as you said, now that my mind's been stretched into the place of awareness, it's very difficult to put it back. (laughs) Well, I would say it's psychologically Um, impossible. You'd have to lobotomize yourself. So then I I, I have to either come up with my own noble lies or in like you... You said come to terms with some kind of noble truth, but I don't know that uh, society as a whole could function because it's it's pretty um, debilitating, right? Right. I mean, there's a reason a lot of people don't want to go there mentally because to go there mentally is painful. Right. Right. To, right. Uh, you know, it's dis- there's a lot of discomfort in shedding your worldview Mm -hmm. now i think a fair argument from the other side would be that this itself is a worldview which is fair this is a set of first principles that are believed in that lead to the conclusion that you know there is no capital m meaning well i think asimov would agree to that Yes. Right? I don't think he would disagree because he does have those sections on um how the science science turns into its own dogma, right? Like that's a well, big, that's, that's the, a big that's theme what, of the book yeah. too. That's one of the things I want to get into here is he understands, there's a couple really cool things. I mean, one of them is that, that old now, I would say popularized quote, you know, technology becomes indistinguishable from magic at a certain point. I think we've already reached that point. We're just so used to it that we, we don't think of it as magical at all. But I think, his argument in the book is 
if you had a civil or a civilization that was so much further advanced than another one, then it would probably be easier to impose a religion that explains the technology than to try to than to try to teach them the technology. Yeah, I mean, uh, now of course, religion but, in the sense that it's like of- less detailed. Yeah, yeah. We're talking basically about operation operating at the level of heuristics, which is totally in keeping with the idea of psychohistory, right? Another way of thinking about psychohistory is Harry Seldon saying, I know what the heuristics are and I know how they work, so this is how I can plan. Yes, yes. I understand what larger... It, it, it's looking at humanity as a body versus a, a, a mob, right. right? It's like, oh, this is how the body functions. This is how it deals with certain diseases, mm-hmm. right? This is how it, you know, this is this is how it sustains itself. If you think about it, like religion can be a form of white blood cells, right? Yes, yeah. It it wipes out these problematic things, right? Mm. Well, um, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that's a way of thinking about it, not yeah. that I think about it that way. I mean, yeah, right, 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 right. And also, like, if you're thinking about things in terms of civilization versus barbarism religion is arguably a civilizing force to the barbarian (laughs) yes because like as bad as let's say the crusades and other horrible things that happened under religious ideology barbarism was even worse right and i think Mm. that is obviously the argument that asimov is making that um before religion we have barbarism right so it occurred to me that Asimov would agree with the fact that he has a worldview. And I think I, I agree with that too. Like I'm, I understand that even though I'm a humanist, that's the kind of meta fiction I've chosen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm, I'm aware of that. And, and I think once you accept it at the level of self-awareness, that's what ultimately, well, again, it's hard to escape the language because it's not even ultimate at the the way I'm framing it. That's what long-term approximately gives its, veracity right but i think the rebuttal asimov would have to let's say the kind of like unreflected well you just believe something too would be in the line and this is a line in the book for it is the chief characteristic of the religion of science that it works (laughs) (laughs) i knew you would love that yeah yeah yeah. and no but like i don't want to like look it's not interesting for me to just beat up on religion and its faulty methods for solving problems, right? Right. I want right. to accentuate the fact that science is actually at its best in the Karl Popper sense when it's not trying to find ultimate truth, but when it's trying to solve problems. That's yes. actually when it's at its most functional, right? Like, think about it like this. Does it really matter if penicillin is its is the ultimate, real, most true drug? Or does it matter that it cures your you know, I don't know, STI or, or, or uh, helps it. Right. Right. Um, right. Does the diabetic person care that insulin is ultimately meaningless? Well, not really. (laughs) Right. No, no. (laughs) Uh, Even take it to more mundane things. Like most people still drive cars and they get annoyed when it doesn't work. And the only way to make it work is to fix it through a mechanical or a combustion based theory. Right. Yeah. And, and this is what, I'm, I feel like I've learned this about myself as the philosophy of science over the last number of years. 
and and this is the antidote as well to the dogmatism of science is not what is ultimate reality oh well we can find it through science that's what it's for no i don't think that's what it's for i think it's like you say becoming less wrong but in the meantime it's really fucking useful and useful in a way of solving human problems that maybe you get a psychological boost from rituals around religion and i think that there's something to be said for that for sure but praying about your car or your diabetes is not going to be the same as a mechanic or insulin which are scientific endeavors in a way and i think that that would be asimov's point in in all of that right yeah no i i agree uh i mean that's fundamentally i i think the difference between civilization see that that's what i love about this book is it builds three pictures of society essentially right it builds the barbaric vision of it it barbaric aristocratic uh you know the peasants and the lords and then it builds the religious which is seen as the uh, intermediary between the two right and then finally the the scientific and business structured one but there is an argument to be made that some people might prefer prefer to live in a barbarian like way right that they see that as more real uh, i mean even nietzsche in some ways makes that argument if you read jack london's sea wolf he he has a character who who makes that argument quite clearly and i think the retort to that is civilization means like my dad. So my dad, he wouldn't have lived if it wasn't for modern medicine. That's science, right? That's adding on to his life. And if we ask what is the purpose of, of science on a moralistic level, if it is to reduce human suffering, right, then science has been incredibly successful and will continue to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I think you can make a moral argument for science in that vein. Well, th- this is why I think it's part of that natural human default to put science on the pedestal in the same way that religion is put on the pedestal, right? Like science is just the next thing to worship in the and, yeah. and, and they talk about that in the book too. Like there's a religion of science that comes in. I think I'm arguing that that's at, like that version of an interpretation of science is a group of people making the exact same platonic essentialist ideal mistake that let's say fundamental religious people do about the way the world works or, or Scientologists. Well, it's hard to think they're not a little cynical, Uh, (laughs) but like the the true believer, right? We'll put it to you that way. The true believer I think is making a bit of a category error and the category error with science. And, and this is like the noble truth of science, if you will, is the interpretation of it as a problem solving human suffering, alleviating process. Right or or human I convenience. Guess, sorry, I got a, yeah, I got a little bit away from my point, but that's my point. Right. Is essentially that is the moral teaching of Asimov's Foundation book, which is look, we can take it's a thousand years, right? Instead of thirty thousand on an individual scale, who gives a damn? But on a if this is our value, then it's a big deal for mm-hmm. literally trillions of human beings, quadrillions, right? It feels like we need Harry Seldon to solve the climate uh, change crisis. <laughs> At very, well, we, we have our own sort of mini version. <laughs> right, 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 right. But yeah, no, I, I loved that point because it, as you know, my 
it's it's not so much a shift it's a shift in language and a shift in psychology for me of how I even conceive of science, right? And I think, and I don't blame myself for this because it's the dominant view, but it's like, perhaps the noble lie is the version where you have to replace dogmatic religious truth about the nature of the world. So like the Christian origin story or the Islamic one or any of them, it's still in the noble lie almost to talk about science that way, right? Like if science is this amazing human suffering, human suffering alleviating machine, maybe the best way to get it into the most parts of the world is to tell people it's the ultimate truth, right? Right. Like, does it matter if they believe incorrectly about it if they start adopting it and then their cancers are taken care of and they have cars that work now that to me like if we want to like level one is the unconscious unreflected level two is oh okay i'm changing my mind um i don't believe this religion i believe this thing like dogmatic science and level three is so the noble lie i'm saying is level two and level two might get you there but level can level three get you there or is it a fool's errand, right? Like, can most of the world live with science as the dominant social paradigm with the more Asimovian, Karl Popperian idea of, well, it's actually more about solving problems and it's not exactly intellectually correct to say it's ultimate truth? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess that that's a question of human nature. You brought up in a previous episode that communism fails because it misunderstands human nature, mm-hmm. right? And I think that perhaps a level three world would fail because it misunderstands human nature. I don't think I don't think humans in general want to live their lives in that place mm-hmm. because there is it's a cold, dark, lonely place in a lot of ways. Right. right. Well, and you now, are you are actually hinting at a very famous line that actually is about Socrates, where it's better to be Socrates unsatisfied than a fool satisfied. And that's like a kind of axiom of the philosophical mindset in the first place, right? And, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, that's, their, that's their claim for sure, right? Now, are they right? Well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to make a, I, I think personally, given the choice, I would prefer to live in awareness mm-hmm. because I think it gives you even more appreciation for every moment you get to live. If you think you're going to live forever, it can it can make it easier to waste time, to be mm. honest. But let's be honest, a lot of people who don't believe in anything waste even more time. So I don't know. I don't have an answer to it. I do really like structuring it as the three levels, the, you know, the blind ignorance, mm-hmm. the the kind of more enlightened second level of the noble lie, and then maybe the noble truth level. I like that. And I think all, it kind of follows that trajectory but it's interesting because asimov makes makes no claim that any level the only claim that he makes that any level is better than any other level is simply the idea that i mean it's funny because i mean this is written during the the very beginning of the cold war right right yeah so what is what is one of the highest levels it's bringing people together through trade why because it's it it um it marries two groups of people in the pursuit of profit, which limits violence, mm-hmm. right? So religion can cause violence and does. Barbarism obviously causes violence. Right. 
but his argument is that trade and and this capitalist idea of mutual benefit is a is a next level a higher level than even trading in the ideas of science using religion Mm -hmm. i mean i guess part of it is because the traders not uh, t-r-a-d-e-r-s not t-r-a-i-t-o-r-s traders yes people who like merchants they um they have to engage much more with what we would call quote unquote reality right yes they have yes. like physical reality they have to because things don't move themselves like like they're just like if you, you could even boil it to the level of the laws of physics items need like inertia will matter if you don't actually physically move something from point a to point b it's not going to do it by itself right yeah and if it's not yes. at point b you're not going to get paid so there's like a, just a kind of very basic but i think very important aspect of a trader class which is um a necessity to interact with reality and reality in in this in a physical sense and so like one of the great little things that i've learned from listening to the dark horse podcast with brett weinstein and heather Hying haying haying or haying however you say her last name is that um the the people who seem to be the least like they're they're making a hypothesis but their hypothesis is people who spend a lot of their time interacting with some activity in the world are less likely to be gripped by ideologies. So yeah. Um, yeah. like people who run a garden, right? People who yes. play guitar because it's a physical thing you have to manipulate. Like it just doesn't, it's unforgiving. There's no, there's no human intermediary, right? It's no. all, it's, it's person to object, not person to person about an object which is pretty stimulating of a lot of his critique of bureaucracy in the book too, right? Well, I think of farmers, I think of tradespeople, I think of scientists, I think of doctors. I think a lot of people who have to constantly, nurses to some degree, teachers... Committees don't fix toilets. Yeah, and broken and toilets suck. Exactly, and if you and if your roof, if you need a replacement for your roof, it isn't a good idea to talk about it a lot. You better get it done right by someone who knows how to do it. Do you think that's interesting though? That it seems like a lot of Asimov's critique of the crumbling of the Galactic Empire is kind of based around their inability to do stuff anymore. Yeah, and and the beauty of what he does with terminus and foundation is he puts them in a place where they are forced to do things because they can't rely on anything but their own ingenuity they have no natural advantages Mm -hmm. their only advantages are their own minds right well i mean and you got to know i well there are a lot of lines you had to know i loved in this book right and yes, one yes. of my favorites is near the end of the psycho historian section when Selden is like talking to the committee of galactic representatives, right? And he says, um, uh, what does he say? He says, the fall- falling of empire dictated by a rising bureaucracy, a receding initiative, a freezing of caste and a dimming of curiosity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, I imagine because it's based on human nature, and like a and a very good social sociological understanding it could apply to a lot of like late season cultures or civilizations but that really feels like right now in our culture it really does uh i i've heard a lot of analysis that that believes that the west 
is falling and that there's essentially nothing we can do about it. One of the, I guess, most popular Christian books right now is called The Benedict Option, uh, which essentially says, you know, society's crumbling, morality's crumbling. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to basically go into our enclaves like the Benedictine monks and preserve our way of life apart from society because we can no longer save society itself. Um, now, whether you're a Christian or not is really irrelevant to what we're looking at happening right now is is the decline of innovation, the over-regulation of every single industry. I mean, Peter Thiel rants, and, and Brett Weinstein, rant and, and Eric Weinstein for that matter, rant and rave about the fact that there's been essentially no real innovation for the last 60 years. People are like, oh, what are you talking about? We have the internet, we have cell phones. Yeah, but like, what has that done for the advancement of humanity? Essentially nothing. Well, just as a quick in, in, injection, the advancement of the telecommunications and, and tech industries, I think has been so massive that it's really overshadowed the fact that basically nothing else has grown. Well, and we spend so much time on our phones and our computers and on our TVs now that we think that, that you know, human life is better off. But by a lot of measurements, we're seeing, you know, your and I's generation is worse off financially and in a lot of ways than our parents' generation. Mm-hmm. And that's con- that trend line is continuing. And that that's only the beginning. Uh, the interesting thing about history and civilization and human lives is human lives are such a small part of a long arc right (laughs) like when the roman empire fell like if you and i were at the beginning of the roman empire falling we wouldn't have even seen close to its end right right? and so we would have and just like in this sheldon perceives the fall of the galactic empire when people are saying the galactic empire has never been stronger than it is right now Mm -hmm. and i love that one scene where uh an agent of the empire is is interacting with someone from the foundation who ha- who's literally innovated something that at its peak the Galactic Empire couldn't comprehend. Right, 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 right. right. Personal uh, force shield powered by nuclear power, right? And he says the Empire has never been stronger, and the Empire has been losing ground for 150 years, right? Well, I mean, that's a nice little uh, element of the Asimovian critique of the propaganda as well. And I I go to those people who say, you know, human life has never been better, right? And that that everyone's so pessimistic, but actually things are so much better. Child morality, or sorry, child mortality is is down, like, and they point to all these things. We're eradicating these diseases, blah, 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 blah. Okay, sure. That is the case. We're, We're bringing the rest of the world up to the level that the West had already achieved. Well, the, right? the, historically, the material conditions are better. Yeah, but that's only for right now. We see these cataclysms on the horizon, be it climate change, be it nuclear war, be it an asteroid hitting us, be it a supervolcano. There are so many different factors that we know are inevitable eventually, right? We have to figure out this climate problem. We have to figure out X, Y, Z, right? But we haven't. And we aren't, and so I I get how Sheldon's like, well, I gotta I gotta you know, put things in place 
because the decline is inevitable, but we need to do the rebuild. Okay, well, not to be too grandiose, David, but let's put on our psychohistorian hats and uh, just do <laughs> start the small problem of how do we save the West, and I would argue, how do we save the planet? Well, there's a great uh, line from a Chesterton book, if men would love Palemco, which is like this neighborhood, and I think I think it has to be the same thing that Selden does, which is essentially saying, look... You know, I might not see the conclusion of this, but I got to stop living for only myself, right? I have to stop building only for my own comfort. I have to stop focusing on only my own existential happiness. And I have to, again, think about the good of my family. You have to start with your family. Then maybe the good of my province or neighborhood. You know, then the, then the good of my country, then the good of the world, right? And I think... That until we have people who are a willing to see that as as their duty, their their purpose, then we're not because the re- the problem that we face is that everyone would rather be taken care of and be comfortable. Not everyone, uh, I shouldn't say everyone, but uh, most people right now, particularly in the West, would rather be comfortable than make sacrifices. And well, you know what? One of the biggest public policy problems right now is. That nobody wants taxes raised, but nobody wants services cut. Right. So we have an inevitable demographic problem. It's a paradox. Yeah, we have an inevitable demographic problem that more and more people are retiring. They call it the gray tsunami, right? More and more people are retiring. So we're just running out of government revenue because we can't get it from income tax. And yet nobody wants to pay more taxes, but everyone wants more services. Now, instead of you know, what our grandparents and our parents had. Now we want also completely free education. Well, who's going to pay for it, right? Well, and yeah, so, that's, a, that's the good trick. There's no such thing as free. The only thing that changes is where the money comes from. Exactly. And so I, I honestly, I mean, at least what I'm trying to do with my life, and I don't, I don't think that like I can alone succeed, but I hope others will also try to do this, is like realize that what we have to do is work towards like we we ha- we have to make sacrifices right and we and we have to try to be innovative and we have to take risks and we got to stop living and dying by how many beers we can drink on a friday you know watching a game and start thinking about more and i'm not saying those are bad things they're not mm. bad things but they're not enough they're not enough like that's not rome was great because romans loved her Right. Not because she was great. And I don't I don't see a lot of love for the West by the people who live in it right now. Yeah, that definitely seems like a major function, like a major <laughs> um, gap. I mean, there's just a there's something f- so funny in the logic where the people really the only people other than like the governments of countries like China and Russia, the only people who seem to hate like America or Canada or Australia or England, especially, are people who were born there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, you look at how people immigrate, you look at the, you know, people vote with their with their footprints. These are the countries people around the world want to come to. And I would argue that despite all of the shortcomings and failings, the reason that people still want to come to the West is because of the things the West got right, right? Which is a a value of the individual, 
in a more legalistic way, like our due process, the courts. And what's yeah. what's really frightening, I think, is how these institutions are what seem to be getting thrown into question with a lot of the way that the politics is happening now, especially in the states. Yeah, and I mean that that's a, it's a sign of decline, right? It's it's easier to destroy things than to build things. It's easier to hate things than to love things. You're a lot less vulnerable if the bond you share with other people is hating another thing than if the bond you share is loving a thing. Because if you all love something and something bad happens to it, it hurts you all. But if you hate something, that isn't going to take away from you. Like You could just keep on hating it no matter mm-hmm. what happens, right? Yeah. This is a theory that I've been having, and I love, I love Asimov's book for a couple of reasons. One is how much his characters love their home. Right. They love Terminus. They want to see Terminus. Their their idea is that not only do they love their home, they love the mission of their home, which is to reestablish the establish the Second Galactic Empire. Right. But this is something I've been thinking about a lot is what makes life itself like I'm talking about life from, you know, the smallest amoeba to, you know, the greatest oak tree or the, the or the blue whale. What makes life unique? What makes life special? And it's that it brings order to chaos. That is the good of life. The bad of life is rot, decay, you know, disease. The things that destroy, that that take order and bring it to chaos. Hmm. I mean, what essentially we have in the foundation story is an attempt to rebuild the order, right? Mm-hmm on a galactic scale but i i think that should be our mission as humans and i was saying this to someone the other day whether that's you know keeping your house clean bringing order to your home right or you know bringing order to your community by picking up garbage or building something beautiful right architecture whatever it is all of these things that we do as humans all the creative things we do should be to bring order to the chaos. And politics, sociology, all of these things at their best are the right ordering. You know what the thing about order is? It takes work to maintain, Hmm. right? You can't keep your house clean unless you're constantly cleaning it. Yeah, entropy is the right idea here. (laughs) Yeah, you're fighting entropy. You're literally fighting entropy. And like, that's the war. That's, That's what life is doing. It's fighting entropy. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree. I think that's a really nice analogy, actually. I'm trying to flesh out, too, why Selden's plan is a good one by kind of contrasting it against potentially how this kind of thing can go wrong, which is... um, So I'll I'll preface it by saying uh, William James, the great philosopher and and psychologist, wrote uh, an essay once called The Moral Equivalent of War. And it was an idea of like, well, war seems to be the human universal thing of bonding a nation or a people together, right? Like there just seems to be nothing like it to build camaraderie and a buy-in for a common project. So essentially it's a common enemy, right? He's like, is there anything that can do that? And it's not like a great answer, but he said, really the only thing that there is is kind of manufacturing a kind of struggle, <laughs> especially yeah. for the young people in your culture, to get a sense of 
I guess what you would call the tragedy of life, the, the fact that entropy does come, right? Now, I want to contrast Selden's vision and plan of a kind of more benign or hands-off approach to um, the movie Star Trek Beyond, the newest, at least at the time of recording, the most recent Star Trek movie. And the villain in that movie also thinks that humans are going soft because they don't struggle. But his solution is to basically do kind of what Ozymandias does in Watchmen and just kill millions of people to make them realize that life is tragedy and they need to become stronger. Yeah. My critique, I don't know if this is a, I guess it's a critique of this book. The only one that really came to mind was it felt like there was an insufficient focus and, and it wasn't the focus of the book, so it didn't need to happen, but it's, it wasn't fulsome enough and I felt that there was an insufficient focus on the human soul in all of this right yeah but you have to remember that but that selden can't look at the individual right i understand that yeah yeah but and and this there's nothing more individualistic i would say than the soul yeah that's what i mean Uh, so if you take it to its logical conclusion i guess i'm saying if you don't count the soul or the individual enough you could take the root of the villain in Star Trek Beyond, right? Where he's trying to kill everybody because whatever, who cares about the individual? We're trying to preserve the civilization. Yeah. Now, does Selden just need to bite the bullet and not care about it, but hope other people will? I think essentially... Okay, so this is my big critique of the book, and I think it kind of, it has a good synergy with your critique. Mm. My critique is that when Selden is looking at these things, he's kind of glorifying two principles. He's glorifying science in that science doesn't necessarily humanize, right? Right, right, right. And he's glorifying capitalism because it doesn't necessarily decentralize. I love how he's kind of, he's got this almost hand solo, like, you know, these adventurous, you know, swashbuckling, you know, testing the frontiers guys. Because like, of all human characters, those are probably my favorite. That, that's my favorite genre of life, right? Is is the person who pushes the the boundaries, the person who explores, the person who goes out there and and uh, you know sees what existence has to offer. But on the flip side, he's assuming that like these these traders are are going to continue, you know, the purpose of foundation. And that greed won't, you know, cause the, the greed and, and then government takeover through, you know, capitalism won't somehow crush the innovation of the society because it crushes the soul, right? And then mm. what 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 can crush the soul is individual greed versus you know desire for wealth for everyone, right? So like. Let's say what what you end up caring about is only your shareholders' profits and not, you know, your workers having a living wage like Walmart. Well, maybe you're being capitalistic, but you're certainly not benefiting society anymore. Right, 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 right. Uh, so I, I think that that is missed. And that, I, I think, goes along with what you're saying about the human soul. Like, Well, that stuff all leads to anomia as well. Yeah, yeah. Which was yeah. a major sociological point I think Durkheim made when he started studying people living in cities versus when they lived in the country, right? And I feel that even a little bit myself in the fact that I live in a big city right now and I grew up in a small town. Like, 
I just don't feel as good about my environment in a city because it's just a little bit more lonely. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting how that um, that all fits in there. Yeah. I mean, okay. So <laughs> this is a this is a big idea book. So I think it's appropriate that I bring in like these great or these not great but like grand theories. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Steven Pinker has talked a lot, and I don't think he he obviously didn't come up with this idea, but I've heard it articulated best through his work of the the two major battles of and since he's a academic he phrased it so the two great battles of the the soul of the academy now and i think we know which side is winning this battle is it can be boiled down to these two different paradigms do you have a tragic view of life or do you have a utopian view of life uh. and a, a nice way to say this is that um if you have a tragic view of life, you understand that a lot of the pain and suffering is built in to the very fabric of existence and not not simply the overlay of bad people or bad systems. Yeah. Um, it, it's like even if you had a perfect government, you know, quote unquote, there's still cancer, there's still car accidents, there's still trauma, there's still thing like there's still natural disasters. Like there's that we live on a planet that <laughs> if you didn't know any better, you would think its main goal was to kill us, right? Yeah. There's a reason yeah. why there's the expression nature red in tooth and claw. And, and this is the most hospitable place we've ever found. <laughs> exactly. And whereas the utopian view is that if we only made better systems, we would have a, a perfect world. Or even a better world, right? Like now, the distinction I want to make is that I think the kind of liberal person that I identify as, like a classic liberal, if you will, what they actually share in common with conservatives, and and I think Christianity did this quite well philosophically. What what the kind of liberal I feel like I share in common with conservatives is we actually share a tragic view of life, right? Uh, as opposed to a utopian one. The people that we call progressives, I think, are the ones who have the utopian view of life. Whereas yes. even though yeah. maybe nominally I share a lot of the aspirations of a lot of people you might call progressives, I actually have a fundamentally different view of the nature of existence, which is the tragic view of life, right? Yeah, because I like the, that. That's the, really good. The utopian view of life allows for, you know, the Marxist-Leninist party to do what it does because it's just and you know what the right system it also allows the bad sides of christianity to do what it does exactly the right? and like the prosperity gospel if any of our listeners have ever heard of this it's this idea that if if you live a moral life god will bless you with material things mm -hmm. and like whatever may be said for spirituality that's bullshit right mm -hmm. that's never promised right that's i mean even the book of job the lord giveth and the lord taketh away right like there's no, there's the, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's nothing in, I would say, true Christianity, and, and maybe I'm play, showing my hand there, but that, that <laughs> promises anything but suffering. Right. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's Jesus, right? And I think, I think that off, I don't actually think it's a, a battle between religion and progressives. I think it's, it's a battle between people who want to control other people with propaganda mm -hmm. and people who want to help other people. Right. Well, I mean, this is, um, 
because the way I'm framing it, this is at the level of the existential grasping of the nature yes. of reality, right? Which is, um, yeah. you know, the way I like to phrase it is that the progressives with the utopian view are trying to move to heaven and the liberal, the liberals who are, and the conservatives who are trying to have the tragic view of life are just trying to get further away from hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why like, there's still the idea of improvement but without like a final solution and and i don't even i don't use that accidentally right like there is no final solution we need to let go of it because dust and ashes once we come from we will return yes it, it's yeah. it's a different framing of the project and what i guess to, to tie all of this into foundation is it strikes me that selden's view aka asimov's view is one of the best attempts ever to reconcile the tragic view of life with the best functioning systems possible, if that which, makes sense. Which, going back to our earlier conversation, is really, I think, science at its best. Right. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a cold, hard view of reality that is then used to reduce human suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, this is a hobby horse, so I could go on for for a long time because I think it's really both intellectually and ethically very important to make these distinctions between like the people with the utopian view would believe in a blank slate of human nature, right? That's the Jean-Jacques yes. Rousseau. And this is why Stephen Pinker has always has as a thinker has been a big Promethean of mine, because he has probably led the charge in the modern era in defense of human nature, right? In defense of the idea of entropy in our social and our biological lives, and that we can still be good nonetheless, right? We can still make choices because, I don't know, it's like the East of Eden team shell stuff, right? Like Steven yeah. Pinker, to me, is a scientist who does the team shell project for us, in a way, right? Like he's a great example of someone who goes after, he uses the tools of science appropriately. He uses empiricism, data, and logical arguments to show the fallibility of those things, but in a way that isn't a paradox, right? Yes. And yes. this is so important, so I'm going to stay on it for a bit longer. The utopian-minded person can't accept a kind of point of dissonance that if they're not yet at their heaven, right? At their utopia. No. So, no. so this is why, oh, communism is the workers of the world aren't uniting in the way we want well you know what that's actually because of all of those farmers in the ukraine who yeah. were prosperous right if only they weren't being greedy and keeping food for themselves we would have our paradise right okay well what do you do with people who you are able to demonize because they fit into a category of like bourgeoisie let's say at, at some level right well you they starve <laughs> Yeah, you, you kill, kill them or they starve. I mean, I feel like this is actually a kind of an elementary point that gets lost in a lot of these debates is that if you have the tragic view of life, you are kind of a little bit more okay with things going wrong. Yeah. <laughs> You're a little bit more okay with mistakes, failure, because you understand it's, it's kind of inevitable. Whereas things that don't work out are actually a form of dissonance to your theory if you're a utopianist or a blank slate type of person, right? And so that means there's always another group of people to blame. Because everything is based on systems in, in the utopian mindset, 
there's always another group to blame or another there has to be because paradise you know when's paradise on this poor poor planet right yeah 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 <laughs> and no. and like obviously i'm betraying a lot of my own personal philosophies on this but it's something i feel pretty passionately about because again mirroring the east of eden motif and ethos once you learn that you don't have to be perfect you can be good and yeah. i would i would change that a bit to once you learn you can't be perfect you can be good <laughs> yeah oh luke you're on fire right now that's, that's <laughs> and and stuff. i and i know like uh, that's a, that might be seen as a digression to put it back to foundation and just to summarize that again i really think asimov is a is a great example of the kind of liberal i can get behind because he's portraying a future that doesn't outrage entropy. In fact, it understands entropy and it understands the fallibility of human nature and it's doing everything it can. Like it's showing how systems actually can work as opposed yes. to He doesn't try to he doesn't try to outrage entropy, he tries to minimize it. Exactly. And and just price it in to use an yeah. econo- right in an economical term. He prices in the tragic view of life because it wouldn't work if he didn't if he yeah the the fact the fact like the inertia of the galactic empire is what blinds a lot of the bureaucracy and the committee members right and their status like they really benefit a lot from that time and sure and they don't see it because you know um in the same way that what was his name that weenus guy (laughs) i thought he had a funny yeah the same way that (laughs) weenus guy doesn't understand that harden has beaten him because harden understands psychology better than him Right. Yeah. If there's a takeaway from this, like I encourage listeners to read more about human psychology. Nothing has transformed the way I think about the world as actually learning about the brain and the mind. Yeah, yeah. But that that can bring you to a level of awareness that you would be incapable of if you didn't know how it worked, Mm -hmm. because you just you wouldn't have any kind of explanation. And and I know that the argument that some people will make is, well, that's just one interpretation of how the brain works and maybe that's the case but that is why religion is so powerful is because it's an explanation so i would encourage listeners to give psychology a chance because it's another kind of explanation and in my experience it is a far better as much as you know sometimes it pains me to admit it of a much better explanation of why things are the way they are than religion is Mm. and you know just to add again my a little flavor to this, I always loved Hitchens line where he would say, sometimes life is nice because you can just have the consolations of philosophy, which is a really good way to think about philosophy as consolation, something beautiful in a hard world, right? I would say with psychology, you get the empathy of psychology. <laughs> nothing, yeah. nothing has made me more charitable towards people who believe things different than I believe than learning about how the mind works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so it's calm, like it maybe <laughs> it doesn't seem like it, but nothing has calmed me down and made me a little bit more open-minded, you might say, than, there you go. Than, there you go. than learning about the brain. So I have like a lot of like quotes or things that probably won't take a long time to talk about, but I think are worth pointing out. So were there any other like major themes of this book or, or things that were interesting that you wanted to talk about? Oh, man. I mean, honestly, we could probably talk about this book for like four or five mm-hmm. hours and not, not exhaust all the things that I'd like to say about it. But I think the, the one other 
major theme that I really enjoyed was uh, just the the ability of uh, individuals to outsmart one another. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like yes, it's great. I just love. I mean, this is maybe this is just a storytelling part and a human psychology part. Mm. But what like there's nothing quite as satisfying about reading a a good plan coming together mm-hmm. and and just foiling the you know your opposition. I've experienced that in my own life with campaigns and things like that, where your plan you you, you go in, you execute your plan, you succeed in your plan, you, you know, you meet your targets. And then you succeed in your goal. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, that feels good, right? And just watching that unfold in this book is an incredibly cathartic experience. Oh, totally. So yeah, all of those instances where one of our heroes, quote unquote, outsmarts one of the villains, it reminded me so much of the kind of last couple episodes of season four of Breaking Bad, where yes. Walt yes. Walt is basically dead. <laughs> and yeah. he figures yeah. out like the one way he can beat Gus yeah. and it works. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And interestingly, it works for Walt because he predicts the psychology of Jesse yeah. and Gus, both of them, right? Exactly. So, exactly. yeah, it was great. Okay, just a couple things. So on page six, the Gaul character, the guy who's like the going to be the understudy of Selden, has a yes. line that I feel is important to point out. It was childish to feel disappointed, but childishness comes nearly as easily to a man as it does to a child. <laughs> I love that quote too. And yeah, um, it's so good. I think that that over that again points to something of what I think you and I talk about. Like I call the hard nosed life, a kind of hard nose attitude, and I would differentiate that from like stiff upper lip because I think stiff upper lip connotes more of the I don't want to talk about my feelings like it it really it doesn't it doesn't understand the the therapeutic need of talking about hard things in life because there are hard things in life and that's one of the great things about therapy and and community is to be able to talk about those things with people who care about you mm-hmm. but as opposed to like the hard-nosed life is the person who has a hard thing happen to hit, to them and they respond like what we mean when we say like an adult and not a child, yes, <laughs> and then yes. can talk about it later, uh, in a non-stiff upper lip way. So I really liked that line. I loved the scene where, I guess it was Selden, maybe it was Gall, was talking to his lawyer, and they had to have that device that like interrupted the frequency beams because um, the commission is listening in on yeah. the conversation. Yeah. I was like, and, and man, they, what a they have a bunch of scenes throughout the book where that happens which yeah. I really like. Like there's yeah. a, things like that are just so such cool predictions of things like the NSA or the Edward Snowden stuff, you know, yeah. like yeah. really just I love seeing those in a predictive sense of, you know, how we talked about David Foster Wallace and Infojet predicted Instagram, predicted yeah. Netflix, yeah. predicted Skype. I mean, it was probably already happening even in 1951, but just the way that Asimov through tech predicts the government listening to us right yeah exactly i wonder if he could predict that now it's not just the government now it's everybody listening to (laughs) us (laughs) the line from selden a scientific truth is beyond loyalty and disloyalty and then makes the point of combustion and i I don't know i loved that part where he sticks up for against the bureaucracy it is it is a great i loved the trial to be honest Mm -hmm. uh the first half of this book is the is the best half like the yeah. first three chapters, I would say, are, are are definitely 
just incredible crafting of narrative. Right. So here's a line from Harden that reminded me or made me think of why the Harden and the Mallow characters remind me of like Elon Musk. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, yep. He says, "Is because uh, this is him talking to the encyclopedists who just want to record everything and like take everything from authority. Like that's their entire paradigm. Yeah. And he says, is there no further work to be done? We're receding and forgetting. Don't you see? <laughs> And I love that. Uh, okay, so here's one of my favorite parts uh, in this whole book is when the trader arrives on the planet that used to be this glorious, you know, gem of the empire, and it's kind of it's it's slowly receding and, and decaying. So one of the things that the Foundation people invent is a personal force field powered by tiny nuclear technology that obviously we have no comprehension of right now, but they have in their. Uh, mm that they've developed. So he's got a force shield powered by neutronics. Yeah. That is just inconceivable to the empire at its peak. And it just feeds into what you just quoted, which is, you know, is there nothing left for us to do? And I off, I get this feeling that a lot of people feel like technology can't go much further than it is right now. And I just, which is a crazy thing to think considering the way it was even 10 years ago. It's nuts. And, and, and I, I just, I am personally incredibly excited for the possibilities of the future, not just for health things like what my dad went through, but for for energy. I'm I'm a, honestly this book got me excited about nuclear energy mm. and and I and I haven't stopped being excited about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like it's part of that idea of like continuing to find new things to do. And maybe this is another takeaway is that that will only ever come from within. Yes. That will that spark will only ever come from within the chambers of your own heart. Yes. It, it, exactly. it, there can be mentors and people in the world who inspire you, but only you can be the one who makes yourself do it to go find new things, right? Yeah. And I think in a way, foundation is, in a, in, a, in a sense, part of foundation is a celebration of the people who do that. Yeah, I think right? that's... That is like Selden had to count, Selden had to count on the people who would exist, who would know what to do in a Selden crisis. <laughs> yes. For lack of yes. a better term, right? <laughs> he, had to, he had to just assume that they were there, yeah. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit in Star Wars, but I loved that, that Sir Mac character against Harden because there's always a younger man trying to come up to take your place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so and true. I just so watched, true. I recently watched for the second time an awesome movie. Every listener should li- watch it called The Death of Stalin, which is a British movie of like the death of Stalin and the kind of like the the struggle of who would become his successor because it wasn't clear, right? And yes. it eventually became Khrushchev. And you have this whole movie of where Khrushchev and the rival Beria are kind of like situating themselves to see who will become. And basically, the only way to become the next one is to make sure that the other one gets arrested and then shot for some trumped up charge, right? Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. there's so much humor in it about like them basically changing their conviction on the, a dime, right? Like yeah. they say yeah. A and then not A and both give cheers to it, like within the same breath almost. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. But anyway, the point is that one of the big payoffs of that movie is the last scene where there's text saying how Khrushchev becomes the leader until like eight years later when Brezhnev got it from him. And you, the last scene is the Brezhnev character looking at Khrushchev in a, in a menacing manner, being like, I'm coming for you. 
you know, and just <laughs> right. what an element of human nature that is. And we talked about it with like Luke and Han, who's going to be the leader. There's always that younger person coming for your shit, hey? <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Is is you have to build for uh, for the future, and it can't be just about holding power. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, as we've quoted from David Foster Wallace a number of times, you know you're always going to be afraid to lose it if it's about power and you will inevitably lose it. Right. right? Yeah. Whether it's in your own death or, you know, the Julius Caesar, you're stabbed to death or, you know, or someone takes it from you while you're still alive. Mm. Here's a good line for our times. It's a line from Hardin. Violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Yes. He loves that. And I do too. I I um, am. I would just present to the listeners the idea um, that I really take seriously and, and basically live my life by as best as possible is the non-aggression principle. Never initiating aggression against another person. Uh, yeah. Is basically civilization. <laughs> yeah, that's true. As Sam Harris says, we have violence or we have conversation. I choose conversation. I hope everybody else does too. <laughs> Well, we're certainly not we're certainly not seeing that right now, so hopefully things can turn around. Mm-hmm. Okay, just a couple more things. Uh, this is a line I thought you would love. I, I loved it too. So this is the the last main hero in the merchant tra- uh, merchant princes section, Mallow. There's no merit in discipline in ideal circumstances. I'll have it in the face of death, or it is useless. Yeah, yeah, it's very powerful, hey. Um, and and so true, especially from a militaristic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about planned and perceived obsolescence of products, which is definitely, I think, a downside of a, of a consumer-based capitalism, purely yep. consumer-based, right? Like things that are made to only last a little while, so you come back, and then things that are perceived to be uncool, like things yeah. made to be part of a fad, right? Yeah. Another line from Mallow. Now, any dogma, primarily based on faith and emotionalism, is a dangerous weapon to use on others, since it is impossible to guarantee the weapon will never be turned on the user. Now, that's... <laughs> yeah. You don't need to be a psychohistorian, though, to see that in the world and in history, right? And this is why um, one of my all-time Prometheans is Thomas Paine. And it reminds me so much of his line when he says, whoever would make liberty must extend it to his enemy. For if he does not, it, he sets a precedent that will eventually reach his own back. Yep, yep. <laughs> and exactly. and it's just like the the I, the principles in this book are so so nurturing to my philosophic soul. Yeah, you know. Okay, this is a good line. Maybe um maybe this is the the, the right. I mean, obviously, there's all the enemies of the book are like the aristocracy, the bureaucracy, and then it ends in a plutocracy. So yeah. it's all of the yeah. all of the crats. But um, he's got Mallow has this line: "The picture painted fell short of completion." And this is again, we've talked a lot about ideology on this podcast. But what, the problem with ideology is that it picks part of the truth and focuses on it as the whole truth, right? Yeah, and. Mallow, being a merchant prince, realizes that that's not how to navigate successfully through life. Um, no, no. So because you, yeah, I mean the the problem with reality is that you have to inter- interact with it how it is, not how you want it to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so I would really recommend listeners read this book. This is this is definitely one to read. Even I would say. <laughs> 
I should have said this at the start of the podcast, but even before listening, I think you'll get a lot out of it if you read it. But yeah. this is this is not Atlas Shrugged. This is a book worth reading. And it's not even infinite jest in the sense that it's not that hard to read. It's relatively short. The prose is relatively easy. The ideas are profound, but relatively easily articulated and comprehensible. And I loved it. I, I really loved this book. It gave me a spiritual happiness in how intelligent it was in philosophy and psychology. And I, I would add, you might find after reading this book that you have a little bit more hope for the future because you stop thinking about the future only as a personal thing and start thinking about it as a human thing. Mm. Yes. What's that line from Into the Wild? Happiness is best shared. Yeah. <laughs> that was so the true. that was the takeaway from all, that whole trip he went on is <laughs> happiness is best shared. That's true as he's dying. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I guess that's that's good. That's everything. That's that's it. All right. Well, again, we really appreciate all the listeners. You can send us an email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. If you would give us a five-star rating, if you feel so inclined, and a review on any of the apps that you can, uh, we would really appreciate it if you get any value out of Really True Fiction. And uh, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And David, may the force be with you. And also with you, my friend. And sorry, I will add, may the foundation be with you. (laughs) And may the foundation be strong. (laughs) 